Welcome to the Best Ever You Show with Elizabeth Hamilton Garino, here to help you find success in all areas of your life. The power is in your hands. Join our network for free at besteveryou.com. And now, here's Elizabeth. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to the Best Ever You Show. We're so glad that you're here with us today, and uh, we've got a great guest. Um, you can look at her website. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do things a little bit backwards today because I know everybody looks at websites while they're listening. So um, go to junkietojudge.com. It's J-U-N-K-I-E-T-O-J-U-D-G-E.com. And uh, we have, and I've been asking her how to refer to her properly, because we have the honorable former federal judge, Mary Beth O'Connor, with us. And she's here to share her memoir, which is a, is a really inspiring journey from uh, rock bottom to resilience as she, I don't know, forged, I don't even know forged is strong enough, everybody, but there's a path of pain and recovery from trauma and addiction to like who she is today. And she's done some amazing and remarkable things. So I'm going to let her talk all about all the things she's done, but um, welcome, Mary Beth. I'm so happy that you're here with us here on Best Ever You. Well, I appreciate you having me. I'm really looking forward to it. And thank you for letting me call you Mary Beth. Um, <laughs> I, I appreciate that. I can. I think it's. I think it's wonderful that um, you're um, reachable and real and sharing this story because this is a really huge topic in the world right now. Uh, tell us about your book. Yeah. So the full title is From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. And that those words were chosen carefully. And I really wanted to make that trauma substance use disorder connection because the trauma was really the primary cause of me picking up drinking and at 12 and meth at 16 and the needle at 17, but also my recovery was about both. I needed to really heal myself from both in order to live my best life and be who I was really meant to be. Yeah. You know, I, I read something about, I, I was blown away by this because, you know, this book came my way. We're signed. We're both signed with HCI. We both have books with HCI and your book came my way and I was reading about, you know, this stuff and like, wow, this is, this is an incredible journey. And I read that six years into your recovery, you attended Berkeley law. And I'm like, that's a really hard school to get into. Um, I was just thinking about it just even from that standpoint, let alone all, let alone all the things that you had gone through up to that point. Can you, can you talk about, kind of, like I said, I'm going to kind of do things backwards a little bit here. Can you talk about that moment where you're like, aha, I'm going to go to Berkeley Law, I think. <laughs> that, that, I'm so curious about that. Well, you know, school had actually always been the one place where I had a positive experience outside of my chaotic and, you know, abusive family. And so I had always done well in school. And I went to Berkeley for undergrad. And I actually went to Berkeley Law right after college. But my meth addiction had really picked up steam again in January of my senior year of of college. And so I wasn't able to complete law school. I had to withdraw because of my addiction. And so when I got sober, um, I, I had this horrible resume because I, I say I'd worked my way down the corporate ladder. So I really had to build myself back up professionally and personally and, of course, get my substance use disorder under control. And then I started thinking about, you know, can I even emotionally handle the risk of trying to go back because it was such a huge, painful loss? 
Um, but I did, and so I, I decided I would, I would give it a shot. And I, you know, I studied hard for the admissions test and all that. And mm-hmm. Berkeley actually didn't take me back right away. I went to a different law school, but I, I was number three in my class of 400, and then Berkeley took me back. So 16 <laughs> years after my initial time there, they took me back, and I did graduate from Berkeley. I have a feeling I can ask you about anything. And if I ask you something you don't want to answer, just say pass. But it feels to me like you're an open book to help people. Um, and, I'm, Absolutely. and I'm really, yeah, and I'm, I'm curious because, and this could be me kind of judgy or whatever, but I don't usually hear or associate good grades with this type of behavior. Am I wrong? Yeah, and. I mean, so, um, you know, first of all, I don't think of it really so much as a behavior, as a, a mental health issue. I mean, okay. that's really the box that, that addiction, which is, you know, now today called substance use disorder, should be put in. I had a mental health uh, issue of anxiety, of depression, and of the substances. But it's, it's, uh, it's certainly, certainly no matter what someone's, you know, intellect is, no matter what their economic situation is or, or any of those factors, they can, of course, develop a substance use disorder. Being smart doesn't sort of, you know, get you out of that risk. Um, and for me, it really was mostly the trauma. I was actually about four to six times as likely to develop an addiction because of my trauma history. So my brain wasn't enough to offset the impact of the trauma. Hmm. What, and uh, can I ask, so you could tell our audience, I know they're going to go read the book and, and discover, but like what has, ha- what happened to you? What, what is, um, so, tell us about your journey, like what, what happened and, and about your book. I mean, initially, one of the big problems was my mother wasn't bonded to me and didn't pay attention, and she left me twice, once for the first six months of my life and later for three years with a great-grandmother. But the bigger problem arose when she married my stepfather when I was nine, and he was really violent with her, and he was physically and sexually violent with me, and it was just the kind of house where you never knew what was going to happen. I mean, it was constant stress and strain, constant fear, no control. Um, And then I did have a a very bad rape in college. I lived with a violent boyfriend for a while. So it just, it was just cumulative and it was a long-term impact of living under that kind of stress and strain that made my first drug, which is alcohol, look like a really good idea to me. Mm. And Oh, I have so many questions. I'm trying to make sure. <laughs> I didn't write them down because I was like, you know, I don't want to have this interview like that where I've just got all the stuff prepared and written. I kind of wanted you to talk and for me to kind of think as you were, <laughs> as you were, as you were talking. But, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking of all the people out there who have, have trauma and, and addiction and anxiety and, you know, all the things that you just said. And is, is there a, a resource you want to point people to? I know you've done some, you, you've, You've founded a few things and um, and you help a lot of people. But if somebody's listening to this right now and they are either in a struggling with the addiction themselves or in a situation where they're it's in their family um, and someone they know or a friend or whatever, what advice in this moment do you want people to have? What do you want people to I do? Mean, Sure, of course. Uh, so one of the things that I talk a lot about is there are multiple paths to recovery. So, for example, a lot of people know for substances about Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, and that's one of the peer support groups that many people find success. But for a lot of people, it's not a good fit. 
and there are others. And so I'm on the board for Life Rings Secular Recovery, and I'm also on the board for She Recovers Foundation. And She Recovers isn't just for recovery from substances. It's also for recovery from trauma or mental health issues or self-harm or behavioral issues like eating disorders all together in one place. Because a lot of women who have a substance use disorder, actually the majority will have one or more of those other areas that they need to work on as well. And so that's sort of a place where you can do it all um, together where you can talk about the interplay of your addiction and your trauma or your depression or your self-harm um, activities. So that's really a valuable resource for a lot of women. And why did you write a, why did you go ahead and write a book about this? Tell, tell, me, tell me a little bit more about the decision process for, for writing a book because it's, uh, it's really unlike other books. It's, it's, um, I haven't seen a book like this. I mean, 30% of the book is actually about recovery because I yeah. wanted to show an example of how I built a recovery plan that wasn't based around the 12 steps. Um, but also it talks about the trauma recovery as well as my substance recovery. And so I, I really wanted to write the book because I thought the sort of having gone from an IV method, like, I mean, shooting meth at 17 to a federal judge is an unusual path, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I wanted to use that my experience to sort of help reduce the stigma around addiction to really say that, you know, who we are and how we live in the middle of the chaos and misery, and it is misery of an addiction, is really not reflective of who we can be if we're given the help that we need to get sober. Our life can be amazing and we can be productive contributing members of society and have a happy personal life. Um, and so all of those I tried to capture in that junkie to judge title to sort of say it's like, you know, from, from the lowest point to really um, a, a lovely life beyond your imagination when you're in that misery. Yeah. What do you think about all of these groups lately that are um, so, like they're sober groups? I see them on Instagram. I see all these things. Here's I just want to give you a little bit of my history. So I'm a human being who just, I don't know, at a very, very, very young age, um, never touched a drug, alcohol, cigarettes, pot, drugs, any of it. Like I'm clean my whole life, aside from a year. I had one year in college where I was kind of bad, but that's my life. But I mean, I made that decision like really, really early on. And I think I had enough, I saw enough of it to know that I didn't want to do that. Does that make any sense at all? Have you, I always feel like I'm alone in the world like that. Well, I, I will. I will say this. I mean, first of all, congratulations. You avoided, you know, something that really has a high risk of harm. And it's not that some people can't use substances appropriately, but still, it, it's a risky behavior. And to, yeah. I'm, I have 29 years of sobriety, and what's really interesting to me are the changes. And one of them is that the last, like, say, five or more so years. Um, there's been more focus on how even if you don't qualify as having uh, an addiction, you know, you don't check those boxes, it doesn't, you could still be using alcohol or other drugs in a way that's interfering with your best life. And that's yeah. why things like 
dry January have have appeared. You know, why don't you take a month off and see how what your life is like when you don't have alcohol in your system or when you don't have other drugs. It helps you see the pattern and how you're using it. And if if you're using it in a way that's really benefiting you or if if actually it's it's not helping and it's sort of undermining you being the best person that you can be. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty interesting. Um, I saw a, a a clip today, even on like Good Morning America, they were talking about how bad alcohol is for you and all these things. Do you, I don't know that people necessarily listen to how bad it is for you, though, if you're prone to um, addic- addiction. You know what I mean? If if that's your thing, I don't think any amount of it's bad for you, you're going to maybe hear. Do you agree with that, disagree with that? Again, I'm just sort of asking a little bit of random questions. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Well, I certainly think that if you're, um, you know, in the middle of your substance use disorder, whether it's g- giving you a higher risk of cancer isn't really your highest priority. <laughs> exactly, I, mean, I know. Okay. But but I do think that we that, that that the science is getting stronger. That even moderate, say, alcohol use, for example, actually is harmful. You're, for women in particular, yeah. the increased risk of breast cancer alone is significant with even moderate use. Um, and there's just more and more studies showing how the negative physical impacts. And I do think we uh, we tend to undervalue or under or understand the um, the danger of alcohol. Alcohol actually kills more Americans than all the other drugs combined every year. I mean, it's a really toxic drug. And again, it's not that I think no one should drink, but people need to be aware that there are consequences on their body, on their mental health, on their physical state. Um, that they might not have thought about, and that's why sort of taking a pause or really standing back and looking at your use can be really provide really useful information and help you make a better choice about whether you really want this in your life or how much of it you want in your life. Yeah. As as parents, so I'm a mom of uh, four sons, and they're all in their 20s. They're 22, 24, 26, and 28, and um, – Boy, they were all exposed to all this stuff young. It's like, whoa, what? You know, I I can remember thinking, like back in my high school, a lot of alcohol and things like that that you were exposed to. But these guys, man, they're they're exposed to so much stuff. It's like, wow, that is eye opening. And as a parent, you're just like, well, you know, you know, you're thinking back to like Nancy Reagan saying, just say no, you know, kind of thing. And I don't know how how um, you know relevant that is these days. Um, do you think it's getting younger and younger and younger? I know your experience is pretty darn young. And I know Boone's yeah, Farm. My I, dad had Boone's Farm wine. <laughs> my sisters used to be like, Boone's Farm's in the house. <laughs> yeah, <you know. laughs> yes, my first, the, the entry drug for many of us was Boone's was Farm Strawberry Hill yeah. wine, right? Um, oh, yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I haven't seen any data that if it's on Boone's average Farm. younger. I mean, I think it was always younger than maybe we realized or wanted to admit. And certainly in my day, you know, and this is in the the 70s. I was a teenager in the, in the mid-70s. I mean, okay. not only was alcohol readily available, but weed was readily available LSD was readily available and then meth became pretty available so uh, people you know access has been around pretty easy at least since the 60s and probably earlier Um, but it is it is something for parents to be aware of and one of the things that it becomes increasingly important is for parents to have honest conversations with their children not just say no but you know here's here's some of the real risks like today with the drug um, supply being poisoned with fentanyl, right, which is creating the oh, overdose crisis. 
Yes, yes. And so saying just say no, well, that's a nice phrase, but it doesn't really provide useful information. And teenagers tend to not hear sort of flat <laughs> black and white statements like that, right? They're not going to yeah. absorb it. But if like, you can, I heard yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. But if you can explain to them, for example, that they don't, that when they're doing drugs today, they don't actually know what's really in them, um, that yeah. that's actually a risk for them. That is different. That is more of the overdoses are younger people than it used to be and it's because of the fentanyl being in the supply so they think they're doing you know um, uh, Adderall or they think they're doing Percocet but actually there's fentanyl in it and so they're one in five deaths of the age group 18 to 35 is actually an overdose death today terrible it feels like you've dedicated your life to this to to uh, am I right or wrong I mean, that's where I am now. I took I took early retirement. I always emphasize the early part. <laughs> um, and and now I, I really do focus on sort of being of service, right, talking about sure. multiple paths to recovery, providing information about, you know, the different risks and the different um, studies and data that comes out, keeping up on the, on the news and the science and xylazine and uh, fentanyl and Narcan, which is an opiate reversal spray, things like that. That's, that's really my goal is to provide information so people can get recovery when they're ready and know their options, but also so that they can hopefully be safer out there and survive until they're ready for recovery. Yeah. <clears throat> um, tell us a little bit more about your book. So, like, what's the structure of the book? What can we find in the book and all that good stuff? Because it's cool. I mean, I it's, really it's, thought – I really oh, thought. oh, I apologize. <laughs> no, no, no. We, I can't I, see you and you can't see me, so it's all good. <laughs> Um, I thought hard about the structure because I wanted to make sure the book was actually adding something, you know, to what was out there. And I, I, I decided I wanted to show sort of the whole arc. So I show sort of my upbringing, my childhood, some of the things that happened to me, and then my early drug use, as well as the, sort of the chaos and misery of my substance use disorder. But then, like I said, 30% of the book is about recovery because I wanted there to be sort of um, an example about what recovery is really like. It's not this sort of fast overnight process, right? It takes a while. It's a step-by-step process. You, you really have to work on um, your highest priority items and what's your goals and what are your plans and what are your priorities and how do you how do you deal with the interplay of a mental health issue like I had PTSD and anxiety as, and, and your substance use? How do you rebuild your relationships? How do you become a more productive employee, put yourself back together professionally? I tried to show my first three years of recovery as kind of an example of what, um, what it might look like and sort of a lot of the common uh, the common pattern that will exist. And then at the end, I do have guidelines and a checklist. And these are ways for someone new to recovery to think through what their plan might look like, but also some ideas that I hope can help the friends and family. Yeah, I'm, I'm so proud of you for writing this book. I think this is, this is so helpful to so many people. And I think that they can, you know, it's such a, it can be, it isn't, it can be such a feeling of shame when you've got something like an addiction. And just that alone might stop people in their tracks from getting help. Uh, at least that's my perception of it. I, I think it's, it can be embarrassing and shame, filled with shame and all these, the stigma and stuff like that. And, um, I don't want people to feel that way ever. 
You know, and I chose junkie on purpose for that reason. I would never use that term for someone else, you know, we, but I can call myself whatever I want. But I really wanted to sort of connect myself to my – that I shot meth. I mean, I wanted to really own that and to really um, connect myself to the people you see on TV that are shooting meth and living in sort of horrific circumstances whose lives are really been derailed and to really own, you know, I was her, right? She is me. That was where I was at. And yet with sobriety, I mean, the judge thing, it's an accomplishment and I'm proud of it, but it's actually not the most important part of my recovery, right? I mean, the most important part is getting out of the chaos and the obsession and the misery being a good wife and a good sister and a good aunt and friend and contributing to my community, yeah. being of service, all of those things are really the most important. But I couldn't have any of those. I couldn't even, I couldn't work on my trauma until I got sober. I tried and I couldn't do it because the drugs were like a wall between me and myself. You know what I mean? And so yeah. I couldn't actually heal until I got sober. So it was really all interconnected for me. But I wanted yeah, to own my history, and I wanted to be like sort of a, a reassuring example of what recovery can be. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons why I wanted to emphasize backwards is because that feels very backwards to me. To me, my, my head would be like, okay, we're going to get – like the, the line of attack to get, get better would be, okay, we're going to get sober first and then deal with the trauma. But I see how it makes sense. Um, or is that what you said? You said you dealt with trauma first and then got sober or sober first and then trauma? I tried to deal with the trauma, but but I could never get very far because I was on drugs, and so I really yeah. had to have sober first. But but today the best um, the best practice is actually to work on both together. So if somebody has both, it's called dual diagnosis. And so if you have a family member or friend who has both, let's say, depression or anxiety or, or, and a substance use disorder, those you should find a facility for them or a treatment plan that is going to attack both of those at the same time because the data shows that that is going to increase their odds of success if they're being supported in both areas from the beginning. What if you don't have the trauma portion, but you just have the substance abuse portion, although I know you're kind of saying that there's probably something looming in the, in the background there. But let's say you, you know, have a surgery, and from that surgery, the result is you're, you know, you're addicted to painkillers and then some substance after that. Um, but there was no you know, trauma in the childhood or anything like that. How do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, you're definitely right. Trauma, about 75 to 80% of people with a SUD have trauma history, but not everyone. And, and what you gave as an example does happen. Um, so the, we, we used to talk about addiction as if it was like on or off, you know, you were, you were or you, won't, you weren't. But now we talk mm -hmm. about it as a spectrum, that you might have a moderate, you know, moderate substance use disorder or a mild one or a severe one. And what your plan um, should be can depend on where you fall on that spectrum. And it can also depend on things like, are you actually, first of all, do you have the money or the insurance to go to an inpatient treatment program, right? Not everyone does. Or you have a job or you have children and you can't go inpatient. So then there are things like intensive outpatient programs. There are now therapists and doctors who have training and expertise in substance use disorder. There are actually medications, medication-assisted treatment, it's called, for opiate use disorder and alcohol use disorder that, have a, that are a big help with people getting abstinent. 
And then there are things like recovery coaches or peer support specialists who can work with people to help them build a plan, to help them stay on track. So what your treatment plan will look like can be really individualized based on the severity of your addiction and based on your individual life circumstances. Yeah, that's, that's all great information. What else would you like people to know? Mike is yours. Uh, I, Yeah. I mean, the one thing that I will always say to not only the person with the sub, but the friends and family is that the process is actually longer than everyone wants. (laughs) I wanted to heal quicker and the family members often want it to be faster. And so really patience and persistence are really important parts of um, success. Because the truth is um, that most people are not able to be abstinent 100% from day one. I, I myself used three times in my first five months, and now I have 29 years. And yeah. so part of it is um, not giving up. Part of it is when if there's a, a recurrence, it's called now, or relapse, it used to be called. Um, if that happens, it's about reassessing and sort of figuring out, well, what can we do to strengthen the plan or what exactly happened, what's the plan if those circumstances arise again, but also sometimes looking at the bigger picture and not um, trying to trying to hold your fear, the natural understandable fear that occurs with a, with a recurrence um, in check and look at, well, are they still trying? Are they still focused on their recovery? Are they still doing their peer support groups or working with their therapist or whatever, going to aftercare for, um, from their treatment p- program? It's really about looking at the overall picture and not as much expecting things to be perfect because perfection is rare. Yeah. You know, one thing that's always bothered me, um, and again, I have no idea what I'm talking about, kind of, but it's just bugged me, is um, it's like once an addict, always an addict. I'm like, that just sucks to me. Because, you know, if you've gone through all this trouble to, you know, be 29 years sober, and you've done all the work and everything like that, I would think it'd be fair to leave that terminology and that labeling uh, off, you know, back in your past. It bugs me, and I I never understand why people say that, and they do, and it bugs me. So um, some people still do use that identifier for life, but a lot of people don't anymore. One of the ways of looking at it today is that, again, the substance use disorder label is to put it in the medical box, right? I'm a person with a substance use disorder, just like I would be a person with cancer or a person with diabetes. My substance use disorder would be characterized as being in long-term remission or maybe even heat-cured, depending on the terminology. Yes, Um, and so... Uh, the good news for families and for people who struggle is that after five years of continuous sobriety, the odds of ever uh, having an active addiction again are only about 15%. I mean, it's one in seven. It's not nothing. But uh, to me, that's the light at the end of the tunnel, right? Recovery gets easier with time. The brain heals. You develop more positive habits. You have, you have a, a, a happier life, and so you're you know, sort of more focused on it. But it gets easier with time. Most people don't struggle with it for the entirety of their sobriety. For most people, it's the beginning, those first two to three years where you really need to be sort of hyper-focused, and then you can move on and move out for most of us. And a lot of people still go to meetings and things, not because they need the meeting, but to be of service to the newcomers, to be of service to the others. And so you're right. I mean, some people do like to identify themselves as an addict for life, and that's, that helps them. That's great. But it's, um, a lot of people don't do that anymore. And doctors yeah, that would not... don't look at it that way anymore. 
Good, yeah, because that would, if I had this, that definitely would not help me. I'd be like, okay, that's the first thing that's going to go, <laughs> you know, like, sorry, <laughs> you know, not happening. Um, but anyway, uh, what do you have to say to, um, oh, let's, I want to talk about socially, um, because one of the things that I've always used socially is the word no thanks, <laughs> but I've also um been one of those human beings who I don't really care what you think is in my cup or not. So I'm good. It can be water or soda and you don't know what's in there. Um, what do you think about socially? Do When when you're with somebody who has trouble with alcohol and drugs and all these things, do you have to be aware of that if you throw a party with alcohol at it? Um, do you feel like you don't want to go to the party because there's alcohol there? Can you fit in? You know, Talk about just fitting in socially. Like if you're a human being who just doesn't want to drink anymore or do that, but you, you know, still like the friends or whatever, how do you fit in? It's a huge so thing think, in the, school and everything. Sorry to interrupt you. Yes, yes. And and, and the, for me, the decision was different in the beginning than later, right? So in the yeah. beginning, I probably wouldn't have gone to an alcohol-focused event. Well, even now, I'm not interested in an alcohol-focused event, but I would have avoided more situations early on than now. I made my husband clear all the alcohol out of the house for like two years, uh, even though it wasn't my favorite drug, because I didn't want it like a, a impulsive relapse. But mm-hmm. the other side of that coin is that in America, the only drug you have to justify not taking is alcohol, which is ridiculous. If someone isn't drinking, don't comment on it. Don't ask why. Don't make them to explain. It's it's not wow. your business. People don't drink for multiple reasons. They I've been bullied be my whole ever. life. You know that? You know that? I've been yes. I mean, truly, I've been absolutely tortured my whole life from not drinking. I have had every comment said to me that you can imagine. Which is which is silly. I mean, they wouldn't say anything to you if you weren't doing any other drug, right? It's only alcohol. And people don't wow. drink by choice. People don't drink because of medication they're on. People might be not drinking tonight, but they're going to drink next week. Or people may never drink for substance use disorder reasons. But and wine wait, is it a, it you know the number a point one, of conversation. You know the number one thing that got said to me for years? Oh, you must be pregnant. What? Oh, you must be pregnant. Oh. I'm like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> you know, <I'm> like, seriously? <laughs> what? Are like, that's the, that's the only reason you wouldn't drink. The only reason right. you wouldn't yeah. drink is because you're pregnant. Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. Anyway, okay, keep going because it's, it's, I think this actually helps people because that is a huge thing to fit in. It is. It's a huge thing. I mean, I will say there are strategies if you're early in sobriety, like we recommend that people actually get a drink, you know, something in their hand to hold so that they feel comfortable and there are less comments and maybe even make it the color of what, you know, what would look like mm-hmm. a drink if, if it's more possible. And certainly when there are social, social events like business social events or parties, it's really recommended that um, there be non-alcoholic options, not just water or soda, but actually pretty mocktails, just like you have pretty cocktails for the people who are drinking so that it's still festive and fun and it's an interesting flavor. And all of this is becoming more common over time, but it, it, there, are, there are still those situations where people will ask, why aren't you drinking? And um, <laughs> I, it's, you know, let's just stop doing that. Just listeners, don't do that anymore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right. So um, we're going to run out of time here, but it's been absolutely fun having you. And um, I hope we turned a an interesting topic um, 
helpful for people and um, a dangerous topic helpful for people. And um, I'll let you just close us out. I mean, what else, what else should we say here? Cause it's a, you know, this is a really important show. This might be a moment for someone where they're listening and we help change a life for two or three or four or five. I mean, the, you know, my website, there's a way to message me through my website and I answer all my messages. I, if I can be of any use, please do so. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, and I actually pr- provide information, real, actual information <laughs> that's helpful and useful. <laughs> that's my goal. I know it's a crazy Twitter idea, um, but that really is my no. purpose. And so always just reach out to me if I can ever be of anything of value. Perfect. All right. Well, I have really enjoyed having you here. Your your website is Junkie to Judge. Your book is Junkie to, from Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. It's available wherever books are sold. Um, you can even support those independent independent booksellers out there. You can go in and ask for a copy if you don't see it there. And um, thank you for being here on Best Ever You. I, I really appreciate your time and your energy and your your information and your vulnerability as well. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to Best Ever You. Take care and have a beautiful day. Thank you for listening. We're so glad you tuned in. Be brave, be bold, be you. And remember to visit us at besteveryou.com. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.